Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. In line of succession for no throne except the one the president just flushed. I'm glad you got it. That is a keeper line. Thank you very much for that, Anderson. Hello, everybody. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. So the Trump administration has until tomorrow to turn over the president's taxes. And tonight, we have more reason to want to see them. A new window into the president's personal finances that shows some very interesting irregularities. We have two men who work hard at lifting the lid off the Trump records. They're here to break down the numbers and the questions. Also here, the billionaire leading the charge to impeach the president, Mr. Tom Steyer. He has a new ad out, and it is going after Democrats, accusing them of blowing it. Is what he calls a weakness actually a strength? Let's test his case. And we hit 23 Democrats running for POTUS today. A historic number, but also a historic mistake. A radical idea that could turn this mess into a winning message. It's Friday adjacent. What do you say? Let's get after it. It's a big number from the president. $434 million in income for our president during his second year in office. It's a wow number. No disputing that. But it isn't the story. The story is, where did it come from? This president broke precedent by maintaining his interest in the Trump org, increasing the need to see the taxes. One thing we do know is that that income includes more than $40 million from his Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. It's one of the few listed interests to show any kind of real growth. Joining me now, two men who follow his money closely, Trump biographer David K. Johnston and Ilya Maritz, co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica. Interesting for all the talk about how great the economy is. Revenue gain in short supply for the president's portfolio. David Kay, what do you see in here that people need to, to know? Well, first of all, his income isn't $434 million. That's the revenue of his businesses. Fair point. His income is likely, likely to be only 5 or 10% of that. And he shows over $300 million of loans So he's paying a lot of interest out of his earnings. What matters on those loans is we don't know the terms of them. We don't know exactly who the money is owed to. Uh, Do these loans have, what are the interest rates on them? Do they have clauses that require him to make certain ratios? Is he subject to pressure for a balloon payment on any of those Mm -hmm. loans? And 
We have no idea. No, David, you make the right point. Stupid of me to confuse the two terms. They couldn't be more different. Our revenue is about gross amount of money that comes in. Income is what he's going to claim for himself. One of the problems, Ilya, is putting the two together is we don't know about what the LLCs that he has. He has like 500 of them. We don't know where he's keeping money, where he isn't, what his debt service is. And most importantly, who is giving this money into the companies? Where do you take it? Oh, I, I completely agree. You know, on our podcast uh, in January, we went and stayed at the Trump International Hotel just to see what kind of action we could see at the president's hotel just a few blocks from the White House and the scene of all the action. Uh, while I was in the lobby, I'd been there for 20 minutes. I saw a candidate for president of Nigeria show up with his retinue, and they stayed there that night. Mm. Uh, earlier in the week, uh, John Legere, the CEO of T-Mobile, had stayed there with a bunch of people from T-Mobile. And so these documents are interesting. They're certainly the most complete information that we have about the president's finances. But what I'm aware of and what we explore a lot on the Trump Inc. podcast, and you all should go download it, please, is uh, all the unanswered questions. We don't know who is paying him. We don't know who's buying the condos. We don't know who's buying the memberships at Mar-a-Lago. And we don't know who is staying at the hotel and getting noticed. There's 434 million opportunities to be noticed by the U.S. president in those uh, revenue figures he's reporting. What is the line, David, about when it's not okay to stay at the president's hotel? Only if you don't want a favor from him. If you want a favor, you show that you're paying tribute. You go there, you run up a big bill. The Saudis took over a whole floor, if not more than one floor at one time. You buy a $60 steak and a $36 cocktail, and you put money in the president's pocket in the way that he hears about it. You think he does? He supposedly had divested. Well, he he goes to his hotels all the time. You know, I mean, the only restaurant he's been to in Washington, D.C. is the one inside his hotel. So he he does keep a close eye on the place. So you say the question, Zillia, what do you need to know? Looking at this number, uh, people see that big revenue. Oh, this president's really wealthy. It's good enough for me. Stop going after him about it. What are your questions? Uh, Certainly, first and foremost, who's paying him. But uh, beyond that, there's so many, you know, No president has ever had a financial disclosure that looks anything like this. Most uh, previous office holders have put net revenue, not gross revenue. So we don't know if he's actually making money or losing money here. If he's losing money, that's actually a little scarier. Net revenue is after you pay everything that you owe on the money that you've had come in, what are you left with? That's right. And if he's losing money, that's in some ways scarier than if he's making money because it would suggest that he is subject to some kind of pressure, that he's feeling pressures that you probably don't want an American president to be feeling. Let's also keep in mind the president has donated or has been donating his salary to the government. And that sounds like a good and generous thing from a rich man. But he also, in the two plus years that he's been president, he took somewhere between 40 and $125 million from his trust and put it in his own personal accounts. So he's been drawing tens, maybe more than tens of millions of dollars into his personal account Mm. while not taking a paycheck from us, the taxpayers. So why do I care? If it's his money, David, why do I care? Well, you should care for lots of reasons about leverage and influence over him. But also, Donald has a long history of having financial houses of cards currently has three liens, mechanics liens, on the Washington Hotel, totaling over $5 million. That's a lot of money to be owing on a hotel that's been open now for two and a half years. Why hasn't he paid those bills? Maybe he doesn't have the cash to do it. Uh, Maybe something else is going on. 
But I think the, that those liens are indicative of the way Donald does business, uh, not paying people what he's agreed to pay them. And in fact, one of his uh, uh, witnesses testified in the Doral Country Club uh, case, uh, why didn't uh, Trump pay the full bill? Mr. Trump feels he has paid enough. That's the way he does business. You make mm. a deal with him. Hey, I think this week I'll just give you three weeks of your pay, three days of your pay, Chris, and uh, that's all I think you're worth this week. Yeah, there are a lot of stories that go around about Mr. Trump that way. Ilya, the uh, subpoena deadline is upon us. Uh, whether or not the Treasury Secretary is going to release the tax, it seems doubtful. Uh, where do you think this goes from here? Well, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. It's sort of hard to say, but I would remind the viewers at home that during the campaign, then candidate Trump said that he did intend to release his tax returns as soon as the audit uh, of his returns was over. We have not confirmed that there is, in fact, an audit, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we're two plus years into this presidency. Every other president in my lifetime has released details of their financials. We've never had a president before who has so many of these unanswered questions. And we know from Congress that they are going to fight tooth and nail to get those tax returns. We'll see if, if we get them and learn something more. It's one easy thing that could happen. You know what Treasury Secretary Mnuchin should do at a minimum? He should comply with the subpoena, of course. Give us proof from the IRS that this president has been under audit. We know they're supposed to audit presidents and vice presidents. That should be easy to satisfy as a request. What years are under audit? Release that information. Prove something about this is not fugazi. David K. Johnson, thank you very much. Ilya Maritz, it's good to have you on. People should take a look at your podcast, and I hope to have you back again. Thank you, Thank you, you so much. All right, both of you gentlemen, be well. All right, so any of you see the president's rollout today, his immigration plan? Why am I putting it in quotes? You'll see. Facts matter, and they were abused by this POTUS again. Our fact-checking phenom with a new list of whoppers. Next. This is the big, beautiful, bold plan. Our plan includes a sweeping modernization of our dysfunctional legal immigration process. Bigly on the cell. Go bigly on the cell. That's what the president did today. This time, what's it about? A new immigration plan revamping the entire system. Let's play a game called Facts versus Fugazi, which is not a game at all. We get into it with Daniel Dale, Washington bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Always a pleasure. Let's just start with one on the macro level. He calls it a plan. Is it? We have nothing to suggest, Chris, that the president actually has a plan at this point. This is a really basic kind of fact check. But usually when the president makes these kinds of speeches, he's unveiling a piece of legislation or at least a detailed framework. As the great immigration reporter for Vox, Dara Lynn, pointed out today, we have no legislation. We have no timeline for the introduction of legislation. We have no framework. All reporters at the White House today received from the White House was four pages of like elementary school graphics. Um, outlining some basics about what may be to come. So the president is trying to sound, you know, large and in charge by talking repeatedly about his plan, but we simply don't have one yet. Under the category of what? I think that's a first for us in these fact checks. Well <laughs> done, sir. Okay, family-based immigration. Here's the sound. Currently, 66% of legal immigrants come here. They're admitted solely because they have a relative in the United States, and it doesn't really matter who that relative is. Truthiness? 
So Trump's number was about correct. About two-thirds of people do come in through the, the family-based system. But as any immigration lawyer will tell you, it very much matters who the relative is. As a green card holder, you can only sponsor your spouse, your young child, or an unmarried child over 21. If you become a citizen, the list expands uh, to siblings, to parents. But you still, you know, contrary to Trump's repeated suggestions, you can't bring in your, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents. There is, Republicans point out, a kind of chain process where the people you bring in can bring in people uh, on their own. But because of how long that chain process takes, you don't often get, uh, at least for many countries, to those distant relatives. So mm. the, 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 who the relative is, their identity, their relationships do indeed matter a whole lot. Maybe he shaded it that way because he has to be careful about going after family reunification or what they call chain migration because that's how his in-laws got in here <laughs> through his wife. So he's got to be yes. a little careful. All right, next one. Um, his plan can't just be good. It has to mean that the Democrats stink. And here's his take on that and their plan. Democrats are proposing open borders, lower wages, and frankly, lawless chaos. Any of that uh, verifiable? Well, so some of it is arguably, you know, political rhetoric that you can't fact check. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many times, Chris, I've come on the show to, to talk about this lie that Democrats support open borders. But I think we, we have to keep calling it a lie as long as Trump keeps telling it. Democrats, at least the ones with any power in Congress and governorships, do not support unrestricted migration. Every comprehensive immigration reform proposal, or even the more recent proposals that have been less comprehensive, have included Democratic support for tens of billions in various border security measures, often including barriers and you know, always including technology, sensors, funding for the border patrol. And so Democrats do not support Trump's wall. They probably want a, a different kind of deportation policy than the president wants. But this is simply not the same thing as supporting open borders. Mm. The one thing he seemed to have had right was the time you needed to consider it. 20 minutes, he said, is all they need. That's right, because there's nothing to it. So you'd have to take no more than that amount of time to process what's there so far. Daniel Dale, thank you. Thank for keeping you. the truth and the facts straight for the audience. So the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, says that plan, if you want to call it that, is dead on arrival. Why? There's not even a mention of the Dreamers in there. And the president has said he wanted to do a deal on the Dreamers. It was always in there. Now it's gone. It's even going to face a cold reception with the GOP. Senator Lindsey Graham has a plan and he thinks it's better than this one. He says this one's not going to make a difference. So if it won't make a difference within the party, and it's not going to make a difference on what's happening with the emergency right now, what's the point? Let's debate it from two fine fellows. Next. All right, so let's try to have a conversation about what's motivating this president's plan. And you know what? For the sake of argument, let's just call it a plan. I know that people are criticizing and saying it's not detailed. It's just a bunch of points and that Nancy Pelosi won't even look at it because it doesn't have the dreamers. And the Republicans are saying it's too much of an accommodation. And Lindsey Graham says my plan is better. I think he's right, by the way. But how does any of this help the emergency that is going on on the border? All right, let's discuss this. Two great guys to do it. Ken Cuccinelli and Rick Santorum. You got the law, you got politics and the law. Beautiful. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate having you both here. Uh, so you. let's just start with just uh, pure basic political reality, Rick. If you don't have great buy-in on the right and you don't have buy-in on the left, why do this this way right now? Well, I mean, I think this is the president's attempt to try to to try to bridge. Uh, you know, there there are folks on the right, you know, myself included, that that look at the president's plan and say, you know, there's no reduction in the number of legal immigrants. And right. That's something that has been the standard fare for the president from the very beginning. Uh, but that's a concession, and it's a concession saying, look, I'm willing to 
to have more immigration in this country if we focus it on strengthening the economy and, and doing things to, to really help improve the overall uh, overall economic picture for all Americans that we bring in people who in areas where we have shortages, which is our highly skilled jobs. So I, th- I think it, look, I saw this as an olive branch to the Democrats saying, okay, I'm, I'm not going to meet you on everything. There are no dreamers in it. Yeah. Well, but I mean, what he's talking about here is, ref- is reforming the, the legal immigration system, not dealing with so much with people who are who are already in this country. I think he's taught this was really focused more on how we should look forward right. in bringing and bringing and reshaping the legal immigration right, but process. But he knew from he them it. it had to be in there for something to be on the table with them. Well, look, I, yeah, it, it depends on whether you no. whether you believe. Well, no, it's always been on the table. Ken. Well, it's whether you believe a comprehensive solution is possible. Or I don't. If we take it in pieces, I don't. Right. By the can, way, we can do it better. But that's not what this is. Neither fish nor fowl. Then, but Ken, th- this is my point about it. That's the political calculus. All right, look, I have no problem. Nobody should have a problem with somebody trying something. But you have an emergent situation on the border right now. That's what justified the president making an emergency declaration. But he only dealt with the fence. Right. And don't take it from me, because I know how you guys feel about what I say. And asylum. Listen to Lindsey Graham. Listen to what Lindsey Graham said. A wall will not fix this. People are trying to be captured. More Border Patrol agents are necessary, but people are not trying to avoid an agent. They literally ask, where are the Border Patrol agents so they can turn themselves in? Now, in fairness, Lindsey may be a little tweaked because he has a plan that he worked hard on that this is going to overshadow. But still, Ken, I'm not saying we don't need physical barriers. Never argued that on this show. This situation needs certain things. This plan won't take care of that. Why do it now instead of dealing with the emergency? Well, part of it does deal with the emergency. They deal with the asylum piece where we have backlogs we haven't seen since the early part of the Clinton administration. And unlike the early part of the Clinton administration, we now have this family issue mm-hmm. that is driving a lot of that back. crushing us. And the president did speak, did, did speak to, frankly, the same thing that Lindsey Graham just spoke to. And that's what do you do with people who are turning themselves into Border Patrol agents and then immediately seeking asylum. Right. And the president spoke to that by, by changing the standard that Border Patrol agents get to apply in terms of who gets to the second round, who gets past them into the asylum system as opposed to It's going to have a problem with that. That's and what... that's a huge element. Well, well, but not really. I mean, there's two, there's two reasons this is really beneficial. One, obviously, speed. But right. two, once you actually apply it, you deter other people from come using the same pipeline. If you return so you, them. You slow down the influx If you the return them, I think that sends yes. a bigger message than even a wall that they're coming back and yes. people say, well, it's not worth it uh, because what we were told isn't true. It's not worth the money. It's not worth the risk. Fine. But we're still t- tabling what I think has to matter wor- uh, most right now. And I know Ken's in touch with the men and women who are keeping us safe down there. Rick, you are very familiar with this issue. Um, I just don't get that there was all this talk about an emergency. And you guys are fine to say that Democrats were trying to hide from the reality and seeing the caravans for what they were. Fine, fine. Score points on that. I was never in that basket. I always knew it was there because I've been there so often and talked to these people so often. But they have needs of building accommodations, of having more judges, of having more caseworkers, of having more medical officers. They need all of it. And I don't understand a lack of emergency prescription through the declaration so, by the president. Rick, Rick can I jump in here? Go ahead, Chris, yeah, go can ahead. I jump in here? 
Sure. La- last night, last night you challenged me when we were talking about this subject to talk. I suggested, Go call the head of DHS. I well, this morning, you. as you know, as you know, I did, and he and we talked about this issue, and he shared some of the things they've been doing and success they've been having. But one point he said, Ken, make sure they know that we asked Congress for $800 million mm-hmm. to deal for exactly what you were just describing, Chris, the humanitarian element. They got half yeah, they of got it. they got gypped. Half of it. They are, and then the same people complain about the humanitarian mm-hmm. problem and how they're not dealing with Flores and how they're not dealing with the housing of the yeah, families. I agree. Yet I don't they're like not it. funding doing that. Yeah, I don't and there's like There's only it. so much money available through the emergency declaration. Yeah, I don't like that either. I don't, and I see that as a Republican and Democrat uh, shame on both pox on both houses uh, for you guys because you're not dealing. You say you care and you don't care. And in fact, let's be honest, they're not even saying they care enough anymore. You know, back in 2014 with the Obama administration, with the unaccompanied minors, everybody ran down there. You know, with the first role we had of people coming through here, all the Democrats ran down there. Now they don't even go. You have little pockets of people that go. I was down there. I was all alone the last time I was at the border. I thought that there'd be media trucks and people there. So the compassion fatigue is real. But let's end it with where we started. What happens to get the help Rick, that they need right now. Yes, Ken is right. DHS is working with DOD trying to get uh, more accommodations built, but it hasn't happened yet. The emergency declaration can help things happen faster. Why doesn't the president use it and wind up cutting off a little bit of the animus towards the emergency declaration? Well, I mean, you know, you're, it's sort of shocking to hear you say, well, the president should act on his own without the congressional approval and, and spend money it. and spend money in a way that, that well, yeah, he has. And, and I, I'm sure he could do more. But, you know, there's as the president said, and we all knew there's a limit as to what you can do in reprogramming money. And and, and but I he think he can that, do it. He can take some of the money that he has that. with DOD right now and use but it for the this. Rea- but the reality is, as Ken said, this is money Congress should be appropriating. I mean, this is money that is. But that they it, won't that, do it. And that's why he did the emergency thing why, for the fence. But, why but not look, do it for this? That's real. Three, if you and I, if you and I or Ken and I and Ken and you and I can agree on this, then I can't imagine why Democrats and Republicans can't come together and agree on this, too. I mean, this is it's <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's I patently can. obvious. I know why they obvious agree. there's a crisis. Yeah, I mean, me too. even Democrats, because are admitting the Democrats want to make political hay out of it because the president made political hay out of it and defined a brown menace that was all about drugs and terror and people coming to rape and kill us. And Everybody that's not realizes what the, the was. crisis oh, yeah. is real now. Yeah. Everybody so, realizes that. It, but it's about kids yeah. and families. Well, yeah, not, but not, about, about, it's not about, about guys with, taking care of them. Not about guys with Uzis running across with bags full of fentanyl on their back. Still that was an exaggerated issue. An offense was they're never the panacea. In there. I know they're in there, but they're not the majority that he painted it as as a picture, saying we were a fence away well, from never fixing a majority. it. I know that. He's sold it as that. I know that. Anybody who knows the facts knew that it was a fugazi pitch, but he said that it was a fence as a panacea, yeah. and it wasn't. Even Lindsey Graham says that now. So why not do what needs to be done? You're already no one ever the said a barrier was the silver bullet. He did. No one. The no. president never said this will solve everything. This, no, the, but the he said this is the fix for illegal immigration. That more people have violated their visas to end up here illegally. He never and says the border. that. Now we have this he, massive he never, border crossing. Ken, you're a hundred percent right. He never said it was a silver bullet. He never said the word silver bullet, but he has never mentioned visa overstays on planes. He's never mentioned the fact that you get more drugs at the ports of entry than through these open spaces that he wants to put physical barriers across. And we all know it. But here's what we agree on. Congress could also fix this and they could do it not in 20 minutes, but in 20 minutes they could decide to do something and at least come to the table. 
Ken, Rick, Agreed. thank you for having the conversation. Appreciate it. Best to both of you. All right. So next guest wants the president to be impeached. And he's been putting up his own money and a lot of it to try to make that happen. But now a shift. The man is Tom Steyer. You know his name. But now he has a new ad that's targeting Democrats. What's his case? Let's test it next. The push to impeach the president now taking aim at the potential impeachers known as the Democrats. A $1 million ad buy. That's buying a lot of airtime for this new ad. You told us to wait for the Mueller investigation. And when he showed obstruction of justice, nothing happened. He's defying you. He's laughing at you. And he's getting away with it. But Congress is part of the system, and the system is broken. Tom Steyer, man behind the commercial. You saw him there at the end, and now we welcome him to primetime. Tom, thank you. Chris, thank you for having me. All right, so let's get after it on this. Convince me, why should they try to impeach this president? Well, what we're asking for is televised hearings Mm -hmm. with a series of them in front of the American people so that we can all see what the most corrupt president in American history has done. Okay. Because if we're going to have a system of laws, then the president cannot be above the law. He has to be part of that system and subject to that system. And if we don't do that, then we have to understand that we've really abandoned the basis of our democracy and the basis of our whole system. All right. I understand the point. However, couldn't that be satisfied by oversight and having the hearings they want to hold, except for this administration fighting back against the subpoenas? And that's going to be another legal fight in and of itself. But why isn't the oversight hearing process enough for you? Chris, I think as long as this president knows that there's going to be absolutely no ramification to doing the wrong thing, It will just encourage him to do more of the wrong thing. If you're saying we'll expose you, but there will be no no consequences for your breaking the law. There will be no consequences for obstruction of justice and there will be no consequences for corruption. This president will be even more corrupt. Everything we see will be worse than what we've already seen. All right. I I get your concern about the moral relativism of it, but this is a practicality at the end of the day. The president already knows there are not the votes to remove him. So to the extent you're worried about that message, it's already been received. Well, if you'll excuse my saying so, I would respectfully disagree. How so? Because in my mind, the most important power in our democracy is the opinion of the American people. True. That's always been true, and it's true today. And I think what, if we had a series of televised hearings, mm-hmm. like Michael Cohen, like Brett Kavanaugh, the American people would be riveted. They would be absolutely pay attention. And I've gone around this country and done over 50 town halls. What I know is Americans of both parties, Democrats, Republicans, independents, are highly moral. They're very decent. They believe in our system. And I believe they would be revolted by the behavior of this president and this administration. Why isn't your opinion shaped by the polling we already have that people feel either Congress has gone after the president too much already or that they don't favor impeachment? Look, I think there are a lot of different polls out there, Chris. You have one where they say they're in favor of him, where they say they're 50 percent plus over 50. They have over 50 percent of Americans think he's broken the law while he's been president. Well, that's different than saying he should be impeached. 
Go ahead, Tom. I know. And by the way, Tom, just so you know, I want to have you on this show plenty. Disagreement's what the show is about. It's just disagreement with decency. Never apologize for disagreeing. Go ahead. Make your point. (laughs) My mother would be proud of me. Um, (laughs) The hearings themselves will change the polls. The idea that polls are fixed in cement is entirely wrong. What we're saying is this. The American people relate through TV and through stories and through human conflict and human emotion. If they see the Michael Cohens of the world, the Paul Manaforts of the world, Don McGahn, the president's family get up there and explain what's happened, they are going to be riveted and it's going to change the polls. In my mind, we have a very simple question here. We have a president who is absolutely disdainful of democracy, who's disdainful of the Congress in every single way, who's refused to cooperate or listen to them in any way or respond to their subpoenas. And we have a real question, and he's also, it's not just obstruction of justice, which the Mueller report details, it's also corruption. This is a president who today reported that he made, four, on CNN, that he made $479 million last year. Revenue, yeah. What is going on is not right, Chris. Listen. And the American people know it. We have 8 million people who've signed our petition. The vast majority of Americans know this isn't right. And if we put it on TV and let the American people judge. Look, we believe in the opinions and the compassion and the bravery and the good sense of Americans. I hear Give you. us a chance to see the truth and make up our minds. And what you'll see is the people in Washington follow the American people. Well, they don't lead them. You get a big amen from me that too many in politics tend to act out of fear of consequence instead of on good conscience. I'm with you. Uh, And I'm with you about banking on the American people. I do it every night. But what I'm saying is, you know, if you look at the exit polls of why they came out the way they did in 18, which is part of the premise uh, of your ad, you know, the idea of where this was as why they went to the polls, you know, they weren't lying when they said it was health care. This Mueller report slash Russia slash whatever wasn't even in the top four categories. And since then, you've had the Mueller report come out. Yes, but since then, the report has come out and said no crimes. Well, actually, that isn't what the Mueller report said. On, 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 the, first, so. on the first count, on obstruction, uh, but, we got but nothing except for the we, AG. Go ahead. What we've said all along is that there are two things going on here in plain sight. One is obstruction of justice. One is corruption. But right. let me talk for one second about health care. I know that everybody in Washington, D.C. loves to say that 2018 was about health care and that all of a sudden Americans were concerned about health care. That's actually not true. What Americans were concerned about was that this president and his followers in Congress tried to take away their health. Yes, that's that's a fair iteration of what it was. How many times at our town halls people would stand up and say, I wouldn't be here at this town hall if they'd gotten rid of the ACA because I'd be dead. So why shouldn't Democrats double down on that? No, you keep thinking that it's about health care, if you'll excuse my saying so, Chris. What's going on is we have a president who is a rogue, who's corrupt, and who's attacking the American people. That's why the turnout went up so much. In 2014, the last midterm election, Mm -hmm. 37% of Americans turned out. Right. In 2018, last year, 57% We've almost never seen anything like it. The turnout by Democrats went up by two thirds yep. from 35 million to 59 million. They didn't turn out two thirds more because they suddenly discovered they needed a doctor. 
They turned out two-thirds more because they understood that they were at risk, that this president is a rogue, that he's attacking their interests, and they were scared. They were scared for their health care. They were scared because he was vilifying them. They were scared for the future. And I can tell you from our 50 town halls, they were scared for our democracy. Well, they knew, especially vets who've sacrificed the most for the country, were very concerned, are very concerned that he's taking away the democracy that they went to war for. I hear you. Uh, and I get what you're saying. You're drawing a distinction about what it was about the health care issue. It leads you back to the same source that they're afraid about him and what you see as his corrupt instincts. But obviously, the Democrats are worried about this, Tom. They're worried about the political calculus. That's why Nancy Pelosi and others in leadership have been slow. But your ad's going to make an impact. And I welcome you to come back as we see the next step in the process. I want your take on it and whether you think it's getting them the place they need to be. Well, Chris, I also want to argue the politics. We may not have time now, but I've never understood how it could be bad for Democrats to stand up for what's right and to show that this president is a straight up crook. I don't know why that's good for Republicans or good for this president and bad for Democrats. Why don't we stick to our guns, stick to what we believe in and do what's right? I don't disagree with you as a principle. It's about what they see as the plus and minus on it. And you are welcome back to do it. As soon as we have a turn in that story, come back, come back on and let's continue the conversation. Thank you very much. All right. You are welcome back. Tom Steyer. All right. So nearly two dozen now where, you know, what Tom's talking about is how do they best position themselves? How do they fulfill their duty and also their mandate to people they want to vote for them? Well, the crowded field now is going to be part of the calculus. All right. We've now hit an historic number with the entrance of this man, the mayor of New York City. Look, it's good to have a lot of people willing to run. But how many is too much of a good thing? I have a point and a pitch. Next. All right, let's just call out an obvious problem. 23 Democrats running. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio jumped in today, and he really makes the point too obvious to ignore. He isn't even in positive territory in his own city with people wanting him to run. The New York Jets have more support, and that is a low bar. Yes, anything can happen, and Trump was also laughed at early on, but at least half this field is seen as having no path to the nomination. And while there is a benefit to diverse voices and competing ideas, the goal is to win. So the question is whether making history for the most people in the primary may attribute to them making history for losing to one of the least popular and most divisive presidents in modern history. Now, for all the talk about fringe issues that dazzles you guys on Twitter and the ho-hum about Biden being the past, he is killing the field in the polls right now. So the party clearly has to figure out what it is about and then who it is about. Now, on that score, I have a proposition. One of the biggest criticisms of this president is actually a criticism of his administration, how they govern, complaints that his cabinet isn't just not only the best, it is almost none of the best and mostly the rest. So what if this group of Democrats were to put the we before the me? And after this first phase, let's have a first phase of everybody trying to figure out who's better than whom and rising to the top and changing the current polls. What about after that? When they go into the convention, they all organize themselves into a slate, a truly united front. So voters aren't just picking POTUS and VPOTUS, but also picking an attorney general, secretary of defense, treasury secretary, whatever they can fill out 
in a responsible way. They'd still have to be confirmed, of course, but you would at least have people vetted in a real way over time with media access. Now, you may think this is far-fetched, and it is. And also, the idea that politicians would do this, that their egos aren't too big for this, and that they'd settle for Secretary of the Interior or whatever. But we've seen some hints of it already. Cory Booker's deputy campaign manager tweeted that she donated to Kirsten Gillibrand. Why? To help her make it to the debate stage. And she asked others to join her. A high-ranking Pete Buttigieg staffer heard the call, did the same. Micro, but it could prove a macro point. 23 Democrats want to be president. Only one's going to get the nomination. Whoever it is, they're going to go up and against an incumbent with die-hard supporters. If the Democrats' goal is to retake the White House, they have time, but it has to be well spent. They need a real consensus about who and what wins, not a war of attrition. The question is, is this party and these people here about a pageant and personal gain or about really getting a win for the team? Thoughts? Let me know. Up next, how one program is helping young people prove themselves against all odds. What a story. Stick around for it. Last year, Don Lemon told us about Oliver Scholars, a program that helps kids from underserved New York communities succeed at top schools. In tonight's Champions for Change, John checks in on a grad who's now attending Middlebury College. Why did I choose Oliver Scholars again? When I looked around and I thought about all the stories that I had done, there was nothing that personified a champion of change more than this program. Oliver Scholars helps uh, young people, mostly in the New York area, mostly black and Latino students uh, who come from struggling communities, but who are good students. This program helps to bridge the uh, wealth gap and even the race gap in the country. What ways can I embed these elements in the story? There's been so much change in one year when it comes to Oliver Scholars. Number one, the kids that I got to interview are going to these great schools and they're doing very well. That's exciting. Number two, I got involved in the program. And number three, they have a, a, a new leader. I am an Oliver Scholar in my own way. So I didn't have the benefit of this organization, but I went to an independent school here in New York City. So I have a very similar trajectory with that of our alumni. Immediately you saw um, the importance of a program really like Oliver Scholars. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it's a really special journey. So once a student is admitted to Oliver Scholars, there's a 14-month scholar immersion program that in many ways is an academic and personal boot camp, if you will. It's a big climb, but our students are always up to the task. All of our scholars' core tenants are scholarship, leadership, and service. I associate myself more with scholarship. I work really hard in order to achieve my goals. The most that I identify with is leadership. Oliver has boosted my confidence a lot. And service, it's always good to give. I just really love helping people out. I graduated from Oliver Scholars in spring of 2018. Coming from public um, middle school, um, you're not necessarily ready academically for the level of rigorous classes that you will take at high school. So a lot of the classes that I took at Oliver Scholars prepared me for them. Every class has a counselor and a tutor supervising the students. One of the things that the staff would say distinguishes this organization is how deeply involved we stay with our students. We are the connective tissue that connects educational opportunity with 
um, professional opportunities. But I think our school partners understand their students and their school communities benefit from the diversity that Oliver brings to their campuses. This has been a big year for you. Very big year. So Haiti now is at Middlebury, finishing up her first year. She had a little bit of trouble, which most students do. Instead of isolating herself, she opens herself up to the world to help her with her problems. I was prepared for the most part, but it was definitely the culture shock that got me. It was a little hard at first. Um, definitely some big adjustments to make. You know, living by myself, being in rural Vermont versus New York City, making new friends. So you felt isolated? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. And then I got used to it. You know, I started looking on campus more, um, started doing more activities, joined softball team. Having a lot of activities to do on campus made me feel better and more connected to Middlebury College. Do you think you'd be in college at all if it were not for Oliver Scholars? Um, I think I would be at college. I just wouldn't have put the schools that I did on my list because I wouldn't have thought that they were in my reach. Um, I would have definitely set the bar lower if I didn't have Oliver. When I saw Sue Haiti again, I was surprised at her maturity and how confident and comfortable she seemed in herself. Uh, because before she was like these wide eyes, like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited I'm gonna do this. And now she seems like, okay, this was tough. This was challenging, but I can do this. As my mentor used to tell me, you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I wanted to join the Oliver Scholars Board and have some influence on scholars because of people like Sue Haiti. Kids from underserved communities many times only need someone just to give them the chance. And if they belong to a program like Oliver Scholars, I think it opens up the world to them. I'm grateful that our hard work is recognized and that other people beyond the Oliver Scholars staff see what we can do and what we can accomplish later on in life. All right, let's bring in Dee Lemon, but I also we need to remind everybody, Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for a Champions for Change special. Saturday, 8 p.m., you get to see all the pieces all at once here on Great CNN. Pieces. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.